All right. On this episode of the Park Hills podcast, we're going to dive into Revelation 11 and 12. And Pastor Alex helped make the outline for this in our sermon team. So he and I are going to dive into this one together. Uh, again, for more info on Park Hills Church, go to parkhillschurch.com or check out the Park Hills Church app. Here we go. Yeah, let's do it. Now, when we when we did this sermon for Sermon Team, this was one of my favorite Sermon Team moments that ever happened. I don't remember anything from that day at all. Correct. It's you, all blacked out. You can say whatever you want to say, but I know you do. <laughs> but you made a fateful comment as you began Revelation chapter 11. Do you recall what that comment was exactly? I believe the comment was, I made an interpretive decision. That is exactly right. So he started off the conversation. I made an interpretive decision here, and that pretty much colors the entire sermon. And then it it just went amazing from there. But it now it has become sort of a sermon team joke. Everybody uses it if they start a sermon off, and they're like, I don't really sure how this is going to be taken. They just say, I made an interpretive decision. So there's a number of interpretive decisions that have to be made in order to preach 11 and 12 well, or... You can avoid all the interpretive decisions and give every possible scenario out like you tried to do. And that's yeah. what I tried to do. Impractical. Yeah. <laughs> it was very impractical. But the, you. But I, my hope was actually with the sermon that people would realize there's a lot of directions to go with it. So here in the podcast, we're going to nail some of those things down and go into a little more in-depth with them. And so we're going to start really quickly with there was, there's a phrase used in both 11 and chapter 12 of 1,260 days that shows up a couple places. And many have pointed out, oh my goodness, that's that's there's ties, there's stuff going on. So really quickly, I just want to say, numbers in the Bible are very significant. Uh, it doesn't mean that there's always something to dig into, because some people just spend all their time trying to do what's called gematria, where they just like dig in every word and try to figure out all these little things and sayings. But especially the book of Revelation, there actually are connections being made with numbers. So 12 right? Tribes of Israel or the 12 disciples. Uh, or if you look at seven, seven shows up a bunch of times in Revelation. Threes, you got holy, holy, holy. You've got whoa, whoa, whoa. You've even got numbers like 666, which we're going to get to uh, next week. But as you deal with these threes or these sevens or these whatever, one of the numbers that pops out and people have always asked about is what do you do with 1260? Now, all I'm going to say here about it is uh, if you take 1260 and 1260, and you add them together, you're almost at seven years. So most people have then made the connection to the fact that there's a missing week in Daniel, and that clearly this is the time of the Great Tribulation, because 1260 is 42 months, 30 days a month. 1260 is also 42 months, 30 days a month. So if you take 42 months and 42 months, and you put them together, you're at 84 months. If you divide 84 by 20 by 12, then you get, you get this exact number. Uh, that kind of lines up to seven years. And it, it just lands where you're like, wow, okay, so there's something going on here. And so most have said, you know, this is actually the time of the tribulation. Then we, we're we going to go into this over the next few weeks about how you nail that down, and we're not going to go into that here. But just understand, that's what those numbers are doing. They're saying that there's a three-and-a-half-year time period and another three-and-a-half-year time period. Some have suggested these two should stack on top of each other. Some have suggested this is this is a half and a half. Uh, and like I said, next week we'll go into that a little bit more, but we just wanted to kind of throw that out, that this number does have significance. 
exactly what, don't really know. But one of the things that I think you did really, really well with your outline was laying out for us a bit of a biblical theology of the temple. And I picked up a, a little piece of that for the sermon, but I didn't, I didn't get to go as deep into it as I wanted to. So I would love for you to break that down for us a little bit. Talk us through temple. Talk us through what that means. And we're going to spend a little bit of time here. Sure. Yeah, because we get uh, we get John right. He says I was giving a measuring rod, and I was told rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Right. And so you know we look at there's you know the biblical theology themes of like uh, temple priest sacrifice. All those things have significance in the Old Testament. So John's readers, right? They would have known this. In fact, they lived during Second Temple Judaism. They were at the temple, they went to the temple, they did sacrifices. So they would have known this really well. And I think sometimes, you know, removed from that, we can we can forget their significance. But one thing I ask people when I when we start this conversation is what is what is the definition of a temple? And uh, you know, oh it's a, it's a place and it's, you know, there's a building, whatever. And really the definition of a temple is it's a place where God dwells. Mm-hmm. Right? Just like what is the definition of a priest? Oh, there are certain, you know, um, denominations like Catholicism calls their pastor the priest. Well, that's, that is technical use of the term, but what is a priest? A priest is someone who communicates with God on your behalf. And so, right. um, so you start looking at, at these themes and you see how the temple changes, right? The temple in, uh, in creation was uh, earth. It was the Garden of Eden. God dwelled with his creation. And right. then um, you know, it, it changes, and then he tabernacles, he he tents, he lives among us, and uh, it was with the people, and then they build the temple in that location, and then Jesus himself is the temple. He is, you know, the place where deity dwells on earth, and then he leaves and establishes a new temple, and what is that temple? Well, Paul tells us in First Corinthians, right? It's the temple of the human heart. Right. And so, you know, now, you know, Hebrews lays out that that we are there's a priesthood of believers. The temple is in our in our hearts. Uh, the sacrifice is is now in Romans. It's a living sacrifice. It's not the sacrifice offered at the altar. So all these all these themes are are changing through the lens of Jesus, right? So we get this, uh, you know, let's measure the temple. And I don't. I looking at this. This was not one of my big interpretive decisions, but looking at this, I have to see this and say, like, okay, he. I don't know that he's measuring out a physical place right now. When when he is given the measuring rod and he said, "Measure the temple," I think he's he's numbering or or counting out the people of God. Yeah, and I. There's so much language throughout the whole Bible, right, of this idea. You right. talk about temple, and then, but even when the temple is happening, there's these constant little in, inquiries of, I'm going to write this on your heart. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to be there with you. And then Jesus is walking around and says, I will destroy it. You know, yeah. This says, temple will be destroyed, and I'll raise it again in three days. And everyone's like, that's impossible. But he's talking about something else. Right, and he's not just using it— um, you know, as a as a symbol there, like, oh, my body. He is actually saying, deity dwells in me. That's why he calls himself the temple there. Right. And he says, you know, deity dwells in me, and I'm going to destroy it and, and raise it up in three days. And so you see, like, Christ changes so many of these Old Testament themes, and, and there are so many that we could go into um, where, where Christ comes and he fulfills that, and then in the future changes kind of how we understand that word. Right. Um, and temple, priest, sacrifice are all all things that he changes. Right. And you're using word like change and I totally, yeah, yeah. It, it's true, but I, but what 
I, I think the beautiful thing about the biblical theology is it's, it's change, yes, but it's also, I think, what God intended from the beginning. Correct. And that's what you're trying to tie together in the beginning of this. The Garden of Eden was the perfect representation of human beings with God dwelling on earth in this beautiful place. Revelation 21 and 22, when we get there, is going to be that exact same thing. So John is given this measuring stick, and you're you're going, okay, well, if, if New Testament understanding at this point is that we are the temple, it would make a ton of sense that he's measuring that. The only, the only interpretive uh, lens that we need to be careful with, and this isn't, we aren't taking this track as a church, and we mentioned this a few weeks ago, because we're seeing Revelation as, an, as the, the old writing of Revelation, meaning it was written around 97, 98 AD, because that's when John was actually on Patmos. However, some have said maybe parts of Revelation were written way earlier. So if that's the case, one could make the case that John is actually measuring what was left of Herod's temple before it was destroyed right, in 70 AD. AD. Yep. And that maybe 11 is just a look back at that. And then that dream gets kind of compiled. We're not taking that direction, which is why we're saying that the best way to probably understand this is the temple being the actual people of God. But I can understand why that's an argument that we could get away with and go, okay, yeah, I, I get that. That makes sense. We're not going that direction, but it, you could and make a very good biblical case that that's what you're doing. Right. And I think that comes from an attachment to these these Old Testament themes as, you know, they they cannot change. Like it's right. it's in the Old Testament. It's there. Uh, you know, so there still has to be a priest. There still has to be a sacrifice. There still has to be a temple, um, you know, kind of that bent of theology that says we need to see all these things put back in place. We need to see the temple rebuilt in Jerusalem before Revelation comes because here John's measuring out the temple. You know, I, I think that that uh, is kind of misunderstanding what's, how, how Jesus, uh, you know, fulfilled some of those Old, Old Testament things. And then looking forward, you see like, oh, yeah, like Jesus calls himself the temple. And then when he sends the Holy Spirit, you know, now your bodies are temples. Right. I think it's beautiful. And, it, and that totally speaks to what we're saying. And then if you think about this idea here, if, if temple is, is measuring the people of God, what a beautiful thing that we never find out a measurement. There's so many, which mm-hmm. kind of maybe harkens back to, and we mentioned this in the sermon team a little bit, that when you go back a few chapters, it says there's a multitude that no one could count. And we talked about that on the last, one of the last podcasts is this idea that that's actually a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, that there are so many followers of God that, you know, I can almost imagine John standing here with their measuring rod being like, yeah, this, that's not going to help me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I don't know what right. to do here, which is a beautiful concept. And, it, and it's one of those things that you see in Revelation chapter 11 and it's, you know, it plays itself out kind of throughout the rest of the book. And then eventually God, you know, dwells with people here. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a really cool concept. So if you think of temple as the dwelling place of where God is, that's a better understanding biblically of what it is. Right. Priesthood are those who are speaking to God on our behalf, which by the way, we can talk directly to God because Jesus is our high priest and he's welcomed us into that room. And then finally, the idea that the sacrificial system is no longer needed because as, as Alex just mentioned, Romans 12 tells us we are living sacrifices for him. So our lives, living our life as worship is one of our parts of our DDP. And that's the idea is that everything I do is, is his, I'm giving it to him and it's worship. It's beautiful. Yeah. And I think understanding it that way, it, it makes my faith so much more robust in mm-hmm. that. You, know, you look at the Old Testament and... Uh, temple, priest, sacrifice, these things were so important. It's not like Jesus came and said, not important anymore. He said, we're just going to do it a different way. And and so to think that, like, we are still, like, you know, uh, Aaron the priest and, and all these people in the Old Testament, I am participating in the same thing that they are. I am, through a priest, at the temple, offering a sacrifice every day, 
same way we've been doing it for you know all of history since the since the temple was built. Uh, or same thing, a little bit different way now, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm a priest myself. I can speak to God on my own behalf. Uh, I am a temple because the Holy Spirit dwells in me, so I have that connection, and uh, I offer sacrifice by my living sacrifice. So same thing, different way. I, it's just so much more robust faith. It's not like, oh, we put those things behind. It also te- teaches us that the Old Testament's important, right? Because yep. as we understand those themes, it helps us understand who we are today. Absolutely. So speaking of Old Testament. Yeah, Moses and Elijah. <laughs> <laughs> the two witnesses. And, and we talked a little bit in the sermon about there's lots of ways to view these two witnesses, but we wanted to talk not necessarily as the two witnesses as Moses and Elijah, but we wanted to talk about Moses and Elijah as what authorities. I mean, how, how would right. you word that? Well, I would, I would go to, uh, to titles, right? So like, okay. so you have, you have Moses and Elijah, who is Moses? He is the one who leads the people uh, through the Exodus. So, right. I mean, we could do a whole, I would love to do a whole podcast on just the theme of Exodus, right? What is Exodus? You have God's people under the wrong ruler living in the in the wrong land. So if you've studied Old Testament, land, nation, leader, those three themes, like God's people should be living in the land that God promised them, led by the person God put in front of them. And when that doesn't happen, like the Israelites in Egypt, they're God's people, but they're in the wrong land, they live in Egypt, and they're under the wrong leader, Pharaoh. Moses is the one who brings them out of that exodus and brings them up to and supposed to be into the promised land. Moses, God's leader, mm-hmm. leading them. Um, and so and so you have other Moseses in the Old Testament, right? You have the exile, the people are taken away, but then they exodus out of Babylon and come back. And they have Moseses like Nehemiah and Ezra and Zerubbabel. These are their right. Moseses bringing them back. And then Jesus himself, right, is is the new Moses. The, you know, God's people live on earth. That's not where they belong. They belong living with God. And uh, um, they need the leader. So Jesus is the leader who brings us to Revelation 21 and 22, right? And so so seeing these titles as, or seeing these, these people, Moses and Elijah, who's Elijah? He's the one who proclaims the way. He sets right. forth and says, look, here's one coming. So you get Jesus and John, who are the Moses and Elijah of, of that time period. You know, John the Baptist calling out like, here here comes the one who's, you know, sandals are not worthy to untie. Look, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Right. Um, so I see these as as titles. So when you, uh, when you read them, it's not actually, you know, in my opinion, not Moses and Elijah themselves coming back, right? right. It, it's a title. So, like, you know, Chris loves to talk about his title. He's the executive pastor here. He, <laughs> he asks us I, all the time. I do not talk about my title. But keep going. Keep going, <laughs> But, Alex. you know, if Chris were to fall over dead today, like, we wouldn't never have an executive. Maybe we would. Maybe, maybe after Chris, we're like, we're never doing that again. <laughs> right? But, like, we would have another executive pastor, right? That's his title. And so these, these Moses and Elijah. Uh, so looking at these two witnesses, there's a thought that, that these are, are – could be the Moses and Elijah character. So it's right. not, we're not actually like resurrecting these two people and bringing them back. Correct. And you see this in the New Testament because how many times is John the Baptist referenced as Elijah, even by Jesus? So there's a, there's a portion there where you start to think John the Baptist, and then some I think are actually thinking that somehow Elijah has been reincarnated. 
And Jesus is never saying that because right. he's saying the spirit of Elijah is upon this one. And the whole book of Matthew is actually laying this out as Jesus is the new Moses. He's providing the law. Think of the, the Mount of Transfiguration. Yeah, it's not the Mount of Transfiguration. Sinai. But uh, well, yeah. even before that, you, you have Mount Sinai was where Moses receives the law. But the, the feeding of the 5,000 happens as a Sermon on the Mount right before mm-hmm. that. And what's happening is the Sermon on the Mount is this expulsion of the new versions of the law. You've heard it said, I say unto you, Moses or Jesus in this case, right, is, is giving the people, this is the way I want you to live. And then he feeds them with very symbolic things, you know, five loaves and two fish, which is symbolic. Uh, and then even the, even the structuring of the 5,000 people has connections to uh, to Moses, right? Because he breaks them up in 50s. And that's what Moses does when his father-in-law comes and says, you're doing way too much. So there's all these little moments. And if you need more on that, the Bible Project has an awesome video of Matthew, the book. And if you go there and just watch that, you're going to see, man, Jesus is the new Moses and John the Baptist is the new Elijah. However, they're clearly not reincarnated because on the Mount of Transfiguration, which is where I was, my brain was trying to take us a few yeah. seconds ago, Moses and Elijah are there talking to Jesus. So it's not like you have a brand new spirit. It's just that the people didn't fully understand what, they, what was happening. And so they're saying, this is who this is. And then they don't know how else to describe it. Well, in Revelation 11, it's a similar concept, right? If Zerubbabel is the new Moses for the people leading out of exile, well, then it would make a ton of sense that there's a connection to Zerubbabel from Zechariah 4, the, the two olive trees and the two lampstands concept. Mm-hmm. It, it would also make a ton of sense that if it's the two churches that haven't fallen apart due to the you know, to the persecution that they're facing, they have passed through their trouble, their exodus, so to speak. Right. So there's this language that thematically is starting to build this case of these two individuals, the witnesses, what their job is, is to stand up for what's right and to lead the people out of exile, which is a really cool concept. Right. And then these are concepts that John's readers would have known, like the totally. Moses Elijah. They would, you, you start talking about Moses. I, I had a conversation even with a modern day Reformed Jew. So if you're not familiar with modern day Judaism, Reformed Jew is like the most liberal, least tied to the Torah mm-hmm. group. And we were just having a conversation about faith, and I was talking to him about Jesus, and, and he was, you know, kind of like, oh, listening, and that's interesting, and whatever. And he just, the, our, his parting comment was, well, what do you think about Moses? I said, oh, Moses was the greatest leader in the Old Testament. He goes, oh, okay, good, good. <laughs> and, and then, you know, like, oh, good to meet you. You know, it was about a 20-minute conversation or something. But it just it shows you how important Moses mm-hmm. is and how much even a modern-day Reformed view is like, yes, I know who Moses is. That guy is super important. So so you get to you get to New Testament, and now you get to Revelation, these these two guys, these two olive trees. Uh, uh, but possibly being the Moses character of the future. Right. Right. It's a, it's a really intense thing. And it, and we're trying to, like, again, we're trying to cram lots into a little bit. I mean, we could do a podcast on the Exodus and probably go for hours, hours, just laying it out and showing you, and maybe we'll do that in the future. If some of the Bible nerds in our midst are like, do that, then, then <laughs> Alex and I will get cracking on it. We'll make it happen. Uh, but we're doing the Bible in a year next year. That's one of the things that we've been talking about. What do we do with that? And we've even discussed, maybe there's some big thematic videos we do just every once, or not videos, but podcasts we do every once in a while to sort of lay it out. Uh, for the sake of this particular episode of the podcast, we're going to close with, with really 
it's not a tiny topic, but it's something that I want to be careful with the language. If you were listening to the sermon on Sunday, I was very careful. Yes, you were. Yeah. To say certain things and to not say other things, but people would then jump and say, well, you just said. So one of the things I said was, if you read Revelation 12, this seems to make a case or this makes the case that Satan was thrown out of heaven after the crucifixion and the the resurrection or somewhere in there. Now, I, I, I didn't get any feedback on that, and I, I'm surprised I didn't. Uh, but some might say, well, 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 what, what about this or that? So I want to run through a couple of verses in the scriptures really quick. Um, you, you know, actually, I was moving around, but I'm going to start back with Revelation 12. So let me read exactly what I read the other day. And the great dragon was thrown down. This is verse nine, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, which by the way, is the first time that all of those phrases are used in the exact same verse. So when we hear dragon, that is a consistent Old Testament theme of a character who's doing some pretty nasty things behind the scene. Uh, the devil is the, the adversary, the one who's fighting against us. The Satan is actually how that should be translated because it just says right. Satan in capital letters. In Hebrew, that's ha-satan, right? Or in Greek, it's right. the, the, you know, right. the Satan. It's another title. It's a title. It's not his name. And we have all of those titles ending up together along with the deceiver of the whole world. And you're going, this is the guy in the garden. This is the serpent. This is, so this is the first time that all of that imagery has been pulled together. So with that said, if you're, if you're looking at Revelation 12, you're going, okay, so clearly he's thrown out of heaven at that time. But if you're a good Bible reader, you might've gone, well, what about Luke 10, 18? And here's what Jesus says there. Uh, and he said to them, his disciples, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And this is right after the 72 have returned doing all these amazing, amazing things. And then you might say, yeah, but there's a lot of ways you can read that. And I'll come back to that in just a second. Then in Ezekiel 28, we talk about this, this being who's doing these tremendous things. And many people have tied the king of Tyre to Satan, which you could, you, you might not want to for various good scholarly reasons. But let me read just kind of what is said about it. Your heart is proud and you've said, I'm a God. I sit in the seat of the gods in the heart of the seas. So therefore he is condemned and verse eight, thrust you down into a pit and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. So some would say, well, Ezekiel 28 is actually where he's thrown down. Then you go back to Isaiah 14, which is also a passage that some have debated whether it's actually about Satan or whether it's not. But again, it says, how are you fallen from heaven? O day star, son of dawn. So if you're tracking this concept throughout all of scripture, you have this case that at some point, the serpent, the adversary toward humanity and the adversary to God. And the reason why he's an adversary to both of us is because God, for whatever reason, loves humans. He made us in his image. He desires relationship with us, which doesn't make sense in a lot of ways because we're pretty messed up individuals. <laughs> like when you read Philippians 2 and it says that Jesus humbled himself by taking on the form of a man. Some have taken that as like, well, that's really messed up that Jesus would have to humble himself. But do you realize that he's God and he's becoming a man? That's, that's humility. So why does God love humans so much? I think that's the question this serpent's asking. And this serpent wants to find a way to sort of create enmity between the two, and it never quite works out. So then at some point, God casts him out from his sight. Now, the big question that I, I would ask is, is that when Christ is born? Is it when Christ 
dies on the cross? Is it when Christ rises from the grave? Is it when Christ ascends into heaven? It could be any one of those based on the Revelation 12 passage. It also could have been way earlier in reference to what was going to come with Christ's birth, death, burial, and resurrection. The question would be, at what point did God say, I am going to become a human? Was that the moment when Satan rebelled and was kicked out? If that's the case, it could be any point in history. That's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is if you're looking at the Isaiah passage or the Ezekiel passage or the Jesus passage, they're all prophets. So they all could be speaking about a moment that's to come still. And that would make sense as to why the revelation thing is, is stated the way it is. At the time of the death, burial, and resurrection, at some point in that thing, Christ won the battle for us and that kicked Satan out of God's presence forever. So I can make the case either way, biblically, but I don't, I don't want you to think that when I just made that statement in the sermon that it was just kind of a throwaway comment that didn't have any meaning. I was very careful to suggest that's what this passage is suggesting, but there's the two schools of thought. So what do we do with that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the answer it for us, Alex. Yeah. Well, let, let me make an interpretive decision for you here. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's, it's, uh, it's a challenge to think through. You know, you have Job in there as well. You have Hasatan, which there is a lot of good evangelical scholarship that says that the book of Job is a parable. Um, you know, right. it, start, it starts off like once upon a time in the land of wherever Job lived, you know, and mm-hmm. um, I don't personally agree with that, but I think they, they make a compelling case. And so, right. um, so did, is the deceiver, is Hasatan, is that a deceiver? Is that the deceiver? And it's so interesting. Is there one chief Satan? Well, yeah, Scripture makes it pretty clear there is one chief Satan. But what differentiates that one chief Satan from all the other Satans or deceivers and, right. um, you know, the the demons, those that followed the chief deceiver? Right. Um, yeah, so <laughs> just, just trying I, just, to... I just want everyone to notice what's happening here. I put this on him, and now he's trying to figure out how to answer the question, which is one of the beautiful things of all of us in sermon team is we get to these passages where we're like, I don't know what to do with this exactly, so how do you preach it? Which is why I was in fetal position in Mark's couch last week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think the most compelling case to me is that these are, are prophets looking forward yep. to seeing what's happening. Uh, I think there there is another school of thought that sees uh, God existing outside of time. So when God speaks, he can speak about the future as if it's present because to, to mm-hmm. God, everything is present at the same time, history and future is all present to God. It's all uh, reality to God in right. the moment. And I, I think that's kind of a, a, a bendy way to try to figure that out. Right. Um, but I think it's compelling to say like, this is looking forward because I think, I think that, um, you know, I think the book of Job shows us that God does entertain the presence of Satan. And, and sometimes you'll hear people say things like, well, God can't be in the presence of evil and things like that. And I, oh, he certainly can like, you know, Job, I think, tells us that. And so I think Satan is is constantly in the presence of God or, or, or seeking to speak with God. And I think God entertains that frequently yeah. until this moment when, right. when finally God says, all right, I am no longer entertaining your presence. You're totally cast out. And then, then we get all these wars and battles. And I think that's kind of right. uh, Satan and his, his followers' realization that this is all... This is all happening now. It's all coming to a head there and try to do something. And obviously we know the end of the story. Which suggests that chapter 12, the first six verses are past tense. At the time of, at the, time of the writing, the first six verses are definitely past tense. 
the birth of Christ obviously had happened and was done. Verses seven and on from there all the way to the last verse is some portion in the future after Christ's birth, whether it's uh, the nation of Israel rebelling in different ways and being dealt with in different ways, all the way up until maybe the temple, maybe, maybe the temple's destruction, or maybe even until after that. That's all possible. But the at some point, whether it's the death or whether it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the the nail had been struck and the, the verdict was final. There was no more say by the accuser. There was nothing else that he could do. Christ had won the battle. We're going to get into this a little bit with Colossians. When we get to Colossians 2, we're going to unpack verse 15 a little bit, and that's going to talk a little bit about the powers and the principalities, which is a phrase that Paul uses a lot Mm -hmm. to describe this battle that's happening outside of our understanding. And at that moment, it was over. There was no more fight. And so God's like, we're done. And it's, it's out. So I, we don't know the exact time or location and that's, and I want to even suggest that's not the point of any of these passages. It's not for us to create a timeline or to build a case of this is exactly when it happened or when it didn't. It's for us to know the battle's already been won. Now our job is to then rest in Christ and go, all right, if that's true, then I can live with freedom, knowing full well that I've already won. So bring it on, whatever you want to bring. Right, right. Because this is the, you know, the bruising of the head and the striking of the heel. Totally. And, then, and then you see verse 17, then the dragon became furious because his head was bruised yep. and uh, went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And so I think that that helps me understand our world today because, you know, when I, when I talk to parents a lot. Uh, I read a lot of Galatians and like, you know, and looking at the powers and the principalities, right? And that that's who we're at war with. We're not at war with, you know, the those bad teachers at the school that are going to teach our kids evolution, or we're not at war with the the political leaders who are going to tell our kids they can't pray in school and all, all that kind of stuff. The, the real battle is against the deceiver, yes. right? That's the real battle. And so, it's not, I don't feel like it's my job to take down all these other leaders. They are in the shadows working behind them are, are these, these accusers and, and Satan right. and his army. And so, and so that's our battle. So how do we fight that battle? We don't fight that battle necessarily by, we need to make sure prayers, you know, back in schools. Although, you know, maybe prayer in school would be a good idea. It'd be but, a great thing. Yeah. But to me, that's not, that's not my soapbox that I'm going to stand on. I'm going to like, let's disciple people to be followers of God. Right. And that's, uh, and let's evangelize so that people are followers of God. That's how we fight these battles, not by political action or education reform or any of those other ideas. If every teacher fell in love with Jesus and started following Christ, we wouldn't have a problem with prayer in school. Right. If every person who is pregnant and trying to figure out what to do with the baby fell in love with Jesus and started following Christ, we wouldn't have to worry about abortion. Right. If every leader of our country humbled themselves and fell before the Lord and said, I'm going to do things your way, we would not have political corruption. We would not have any of these things. And so I think, and I love that statement. That's exactly what we're about, especially here at Park Hills. But in general, our goal, our job is to lead people to Jesus and as we do that, that battle is won. That's the battle we're going to focus on. Because my little vote in Illinois doesn't accomplish the grand political scheme that I would like to, it to, to accomplish. I'm not going to be able to win that battle. Right. I believe there's a way bigger power, God, who's in charge of all of those things. And he uses every leader, good or bad. You see this with Nebuchadnezzar. You see this with David. You see this even with guys like Ahab and who are Pharaoh, really, yeah. you know, in Pharaoh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. God uses 
everybody, whether they're good or bad, to serve his purposes and to do his thing. So our job as believers is to sit back and go, I'm going to be active in, in my, my, my life to do whatever it takes to follow Jesus, but I'm going to trust that God's got a bigger plan. And if it doesn't go the way I want it to, I'm not going to rage. That's what the nations do. I'm not going to rage. I'm going to trust. I'm going to be still. I'm going to know that he's God. I'm going to let him roll the history story out the way he wants to do it. Right, right. And our job is to obey God. Amen. You know, to, to give a, a shout out to my buddy Jed Haas here, he asks such a great question. He's like, he says, what's the best way to love your wife? And, you know, he gets a couple answers and um, people, he'll be like, it's not the five love languages. It's not, you know, all these different books. That's not the best way to love your wife. He says, the best way to love your wife is to obey God. Mm-hmm. If you obey God in everything, that's how, how you best love your wife. And if we think about that, and what's the best way to be a citizen in our nation? To obey God. What's the best way to deal with our neighbor that's given us problems or mm-hmm. that, you know, like put his fence on our property or whatever is to obey God. And if, you know, like you're saying, if everybody followed Jesus, then we wouldn't have these problems or we'd have less. We still have sin, right? Yep. But if everybody was seeking to follow Jesus, then these problems wouldn't be there because that, I think if, if Revelation can teach us anything, it's that our problems are not the people and issues that we deal with. Like right. that's not the problem in our world today. The problem in our world today is that the deceiver, the Satan is rampant in our world and is wreaking havoc. And that's, that's where the power's at. And, uh, you know, so, so our solution can't be legislation. It can't be education. It can't be resources because none of those fight the true issue that we're having. Now, what fights the true issue that we're having is is a spiritual issue of if we are if we are temples and if we are priests and if we are offering that sacrifice yeah. that living sacrifice, that's how we fight that problem. If we're doing those three things, then yeah, we will be involved in uh, education reform. Yeah, yep. we will be involved in getting the right resources to the right people, and we will be involved in making the right legislation happen. But that's not first. That's not. That's not our goal. That's not how we fix things. How we fix things is we be disciples, and disciples write good education policy. They write good legislation. They like good, you know, reformation. That's where we should be going. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.